Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and by David Priest, the coach and commentator. As two ex-pros, I suspect they'll relate to much of my conversation with Jamie Vardy. That's coming later. First, though, the Champions League. All four Premier League teams have made it to the last 16. Tottenham joined the party with a last kick win in Marseille. Yet, typically, they generated more questions than answers. They might also be third in the league. But Aid, we don't really know how good they are, do we? <laughs> no, I guess not. They're, they're not a good first half team, that is for sure. <laughs> Far better, aren't they, in, in the second half. It, they're sort of making life really, really difficult for themselves, aren't they? With these sluggish opening spells. It's a great result in the context of the group. They've gone to Marseille, a difficult place to be, cauldron of an atmosphere, and, and they've nicked a win. So so well done to them. But I, th- I think we can all see with our own eyes that there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done by Antonio Conte to get that team up to a level where they can actually challenge in the Champions League or challenge in, in the Premier League. I think, yeah, that they're still far too reliant on on the front two. An example of that, again, with Heuberg scoring that, that great goal at the end. It was a really, really good goal. Heuberg is, is the third most creative player for Spurs this season in terms of creating chances. Now, I don't think we would have him down as, as that type of player. He's having a great campaign. I'll give him that. But I think what it shows you is there's a dearth of, of players that connect what is a workman-like side in behind Kane and Son they struggle to connect those guys with the front two unless it's on those ruthless counter-attacks so there's work to be done I think that he probably needs to strengthen at wing back strengthen at centre half but yeah he's an efficient manager that produces ruthless winning football isn't he Antonio Conte and and Spurs will still win more than they lose under him no doubt about that but yeah the jury's out on how, how good they are mm. well everything does seem to centre on Conte doesn't it Dave you know, there seems always to be an edge with him. You know, talk about, oh, Juventus, if, if this all goes pear-shaped at Spurs. I suppose the, the real question is, is his tactical caution suffocating his team? 
I think when people there uh, when he came in and in the style of play and, and the way it's progressed, there's been a lot of comparisons with Jose Mourinho. The real difference between them is that Mourinho went to get ahead early in games and held on to it. The other, other side with Conte is that they, they seem very cautious, sort of very, very safe, and that especially in the opening forty-five minutes, and then go for it in the second half, which doesn't always work. It's a gamble. But I think Hugo Ruiz said it's they played with fear first half. You could see that they played with fear. They couldn't connect passes. It made it really difficult for them, especially when Marseille, you know, it was a lot clearer to them what they had to do. And and I think you've seen that when Tottenham went 1-0 behind. It gave them a sort of clarity, right? This is what we've got to do. We've got to, we've got to go forward. We've got to be more aggressive, you know, press. They changed things a little bit in the, that second half where it ended up being more like a 4-5-1 in the first half. And it was difficult for them to get out. As soon as it went to kind of like a 5-3-2 and they could press from the middle of the pitch and they can press higher up, it was a totally different game for them. But I also think it was a, it was a, it's a huge handicap not having the, the manager at the side of the pitch. I think that, that that especially early in the game, it's it's almost like a, when a, when a club doesn't have a manager and they have, don't have that focal point, don't have that authority in the club. It's, it's almost the same. The pitch you can feel it on the pitch. I know from experience, and it's probably one thing that you know you talk about Conte being on the edge all the time, whatever the the, the topic is. But certainly on the sidelines, it, it's like that as well, and that's the danger, you know, of being like that and being so emotional that you're going to risk missing games for your team. Yeah, his his personality does dominate that club, doesn't it? Now, knockout stages, obviously qualifying for those is a, is a huge financial boost to Spurs' aid. Conte will expect that money to be spent in January, won't he? I suppose some of it. Yeah, he he probably want one or two additions. The last few January transfer windows have been pre, been virtual non-events, though, haven't they? I don't think we should get. Overexcited. There might be one or two clubs on the back of the World Cup that 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 want to take the plunge on players that shine over there in Qatar. We'll have to wait and see. But yeah, I wouldn't expect radical changes. I just think they need to evolve a little bit more as a team. And yeah, but have the confidence to start matches better and not rely so much on on the counter attacks. I mean, they absorb a lot, don't they? I was looking at the numbers. I mean, I watched the game against Brighton. <laughs> You'd have thought they were playing against, you know, Bayern Munich, the way they were sort of packed on on the edge of their own 18-yard box with, you know, three defenders, then the two wing-backs, three players sat in front of them. It was it was very very defensive and and, and you look at the numbers and only four teams have faced more shots than Spurs, which is Remarkable, given that they are one of the top teams in the country. So, so yeah, I, I would if I was a Spurs fan, I would I would be looking to 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 evolve and develop more of a more sustained pressure and just to be able to score goals when when you wear teams down at the other end of the pitch. Because the more touches Kane and Son and Kulusevski and Moura have, surely the more chance they have of um, you know hurting teams. Mm. Well, Liverpool are at Spurs on Sunday. Do you expect that to be an agenda-setting game, Dave? I think every week in the Premier League, the agendas change depending on the results. I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, this seven-year rich with, with Klopp. And it's remarkable, really, when people talk about it in a real negative way. They say, oh, well, you know, after seven years at a club, then he's finished. You know, that's the end of his time. 400 games into his tenure at, at Liverpool and he's hit a rocky patch, you know, 
when most managers don't even get 18 months. I think it's a, it's a ridiculous comment to use against him. But for me, it's Klopp is anywhere near the end of his tenure at Liverpool. This is nothing that one or two transfer windows can't can't change. And, you know, you look around and you look at the options. Who's the best man to lead Liverpool forward? Of course, it's Jurgen Klopp. And they've changed a little bit in the way that they play. The dynamic of the midfield has changed from two or three years ago. But um, I was really impressed with Napoli last night as well. I think Napoli's midfield was kind of like the what you would like to see, or what Klopp would like to see uh, their midfield be like dynamic, you know, Angisa, Laboka, and Dumbele. It was really a really dynamic midfield three. I thought it was really interesting the first couple of uh, first 10, 15 minutes where it was it was really high tempo. There was lots of high pressing, lots of turnover of ball. Of course, people are always going to say that's the problem for Liverpool at the moment is that midfield. Yeah, sure. I suppose there was a, a modicum of reassurance in that win over Napoli. Aid when you think about it, Mo Salah is still the most prolific player in the competition. Darwin Nunes, another goal for him, and he's well on the way to being a folk hero. You know, he's almost um, Ibrahimovic light, isn't he? I do like him. I do like Darwin Nunes. He's uh, he's got some energy about him. He, he he's a trier. He will make run after run after run, and and. Until he gets in, I think he'll always get chances. He reminds me a little bit of Fernando Torres, you know, the younger version of him with the electricity about his play. But I, I do think he's a, a good player that will enliven them, not just this season, but for a few years. When you think about Luis Diaz, who's out at the moment as well, then that's two of the front three that that, that have come in and injected fresh life. I think the next objective, as Priestley says, is to fix the rest of the team. I think... Henderson, Fabinho, Thiago, Firmino. That's the axis, isn't it? That's the bit where they're all over 30. A couple of those might have to fall by the wayside for for younger players in their early 20s to come in and add that dynamism that, that maybe Napoli have got. I just, I've got nothing against over 30s. I've been there as a player <laughs> myself. But to have six or seven in your team, which was what was happening a little bit earlier in the season, is too many. I don't, I don't know if... I, do you agree on that, Precy? I mean, I, I just feel that in terms of... Sometimes you work out of possession, just that ability to recover and, and cover for teammates, that fades a little bit when you've got too many too many over 30s in the team. Yeah, I think when people looked at the data, they've seen that the pressing data has sort of dropped from from peak Liverpool. And I know that there's a lot of people being criticised in the, the, the sort of the transfer dealings and, and the policy saying that, you know, it's kind of like we've got a number one target and nothing else. Not that there isn't other names on the list, it's just that if we don't get them, then we'd rather have nobody. Well, the problem with that is it's okay, you can be loyal to players, you know, he knows he can rely on certain individuals. But the problem with that is that Manchester City are doing it and Manchester City are evolving and, and sort of drip-feeding players into into their squad. Yeah, it, it's, it will be a problem, but certainly it's it's something that if we're looking at it, and Jurgen Klopp certainly knows what, what needs to be done and, and the next two transfer windows are going to be huge for them, I think. And he's, and he's also, Mike, recognised the need for a bit of change, maybe recognised that it has got a bit stale by changing the system, hasn't he? He's gone that four four two or the diamond. And and I think that, yeah, I think he's, he, he knows the team needs to be freshened up. What was interesting in the game against Napoli was Canate coming in. I've watched Liverpool quite a lot in recent weeks and, and Joe Gomez has struggled. I don't want to dig him out too much, but he hasn't been in great form. And uh, 
I do think that Canate with his his pace coupled with Virgil van Dijk's pace will will enhance that back four moving forward. So, uh, and I think he had a good game against Napoli. Mm, yeah, right on cue. Been stories in the German press on Wednesday morning about a hundred million euro bid for Jude Bellingham from Liverpool. You know, frankly, that's not going to be enough, is it? But uh, which which tells you the way the market's going. And I suppose is is it time really to get real, Dave? In terms of, I know before the Napoli game, Klopp was talking about European success being pretty much impossible because of their inconsistency. Again, being realistic, is retaining a top four place their principal target this season? Yeah, I think it has to it has to be. You know, they can't rely on winning the the, the Champions League. And far for me to, to disagree with somebody like Jurgen Klopp, but I also think it can work in their favour as well. We always hear of, of of teams that aren't doing well in the league. You know, having a you know the the, the cup games giving them a break and a different kind of focus away from that. So I think that can that can happen with Liverpool. And they certainly listen. You, you can't rule them out. You can rule them out of the Premier League probably, but you can't rule them out of winning a. Winning the Champions League certainly. Yeah, they're too good a team, aren't they? They're too good a team to be written off right now. There's every every chance they can come back and finish second or third potentially. I mean, it's it's a, it's a tall order, but but you know they've got they've got a bit of pedigree in there. On Jude Bellingham, by the way, has a player ever been more suitable to a team than Jude Bellingham to Liverpool? I just can't think of one. I think he would absolutely solve. A multitude of uh, of issues for Jurgen Klopp and that Liverpool team. He was tailor made for them. Yeah, I, if I were in their shoes, I'd be trying to cultivate that relationship and uh, and make it happen in the summer. Well, well, if you think of the the, the goal that they had with Genie Wijnaldum when he was at his peak, you know they, they, they kind of missed that. You know the three midfield last night, Milner, Fabinho, and uh, and Thiago. Yes, they're very good players, of course, in their own right, but they're not the ones that are going to do the job of getting in the box and get goals as well. So they miss that as well, don't they? Yeah, they do. Is there also a sense that you know everyone around in that sort of top four, top six area is now are now being threatened by Newcastle? I think so, yeah, definitely. Newcastle have been outstanding, haven't they? Best defensive record in the division. Callum Wilson, certainly one of the most informed strikers. Miguel Amaron. One of the most informed players in the division. I mean, Newcastle fans are, must be so excited at, at what's happening at St James's Park. And what can trip them up? I suppose injuries and suspensions in the second half of the season, perhaps, is where they might fall by the wayside. But they look nailed on for top eight, don't they? And, and it's can they break into that big six? I think they look capable of it, no doubt about it. I mean, Eddie Howe. His coaching, the way he's improved the players as individuals and then improved the collective deserves um, high praise. He's been outstanding. Mm. What about Chelsea, Dave? Small earthquake in Brighton? (laughs) Few egos bruised? Yeah, I I think you you look at Graham's uh, interviews after the game and there was was an element of shock there, I think. I think he's probably shocked at the reception that he got from the Brighton crowd as well. I think he probably... I would say he was he was disappointed in that, very disappointed. I don't think anybody could have blamed him for for leaving, you know. So there's that, but also the the scoreline suggested it was it was a different game. Of course, they had their own chances, and, and, it, and it, it could have been a lot more level than it than it actually turned out to be. But I think this is the one thing that Graham's not had before that that's real expectation, and that 
every game, you know, it would only take 90 minutes, like you said yesterday. It only takes 90 minutes for, for a crisis to appear or to, for it to feel like a crisis. And I think it's probably one thing he's got to get used to is that he just has to bat those questions away, really. He's got to get better at sort of deflecting those questions and or absorbing them a little bit more than than looking like it's, it, it is a crisis or that, that it's, it is going to affect him. And of course, again, I don't want to tell a manager of, of Graham's, uh, you know, what he should be doing, but yeah, I think you're going to expect more than that in the, in the future as well, because it doesn't matter how well you're doing and he has had a great start. Mm. You know, there's going to be more, more moments like this. Mm. Well, I suppose the irony is, isn't it, Nate, that, you know, here we've got a training ground coach mm denied time on the grass simply because the schedule is so insane this this month in particular yeah it's it's a very unusual time isn't it and uh yeah not ideal so, so in that sense as Preci points out it's been pretty good because he hasn't had that much time to to work on the training ground he's mixed and matched his teams hasn't he he's rotated very very heavily taking a good look at look at everybody in the squad, isn't he? So, look, he won't have many players there, will he, during the World Cup? A lot of them will be away, so that, that time will be denied him as well. But, yeah, David, it's absolutely right about the, the pressure and the expectation. That's the That was the risk in, in appointing him, wasn't it? Because he's not worked at a club that size before. I think he'll be fine. He'll just have to learn on, learn on that job. And, and tactically, he got a lot of stick, didn't he, for, for putting Sterling and, and uh, Pulisic as wingbacks. But, I mean, it's something that has already worked for them in, in other games. It worked for, for them a lot at Brighton. So, yeah, I, I don't think we should sort of hammer him for that. It's, uh, he, he is always going to be a coach that, that tries things. And, and his track record suggests that when he experiments, he gets it right a lot more often than he gets it wrong. So, um, yeah, it was a horrible day for him. A bit embarrassing, wasn't it, to get hammered by Brighton? But, yeah, he's he's still a very, very good tactician. I think just going back to what he had said about the numbers left at the training ground during the World Cup, I think you're actually talking potentially single figures in that first-team squad, <laughs> in that immediate first-team squad. So where a lot of managers, you know, look at somebody further down the leagues, like Michael Carrick going into Middlesbrough, those few weeks that they have um, off because of the World Cup, they can focus on something, they've got something to work on. Again, they can use that really constructively where, you know, there's very little that uh, Graham's going to be able to do in that time. And it's it's difficult for someone like Raheem Sterling. He's he's taking him out of his comfort zone a little bit, asking him to do different things, think outside the box, and then he's gone going to go off with England for we hope the full month or the full five weeks, and then come back and and be asked to pick that up straight away. It's not going to be easy. So um, yeah, I think we won't see the best of Chelsea. We won't see them in a full flow until later in the season, in, in my opinion. It's, it's just he's not a coach that will will get his team because there's so much information he's imparting on the players so much new stuff it's never going to just click just like that yeah well lest we forget Erling Haaland will be hanging about the place at Manchester City for for a few weeks you know and he's obviously going to be a unique asset in a unique season with City Dave are they justifiable favourites to win the Champions League possibly but whenever there's a competition certainly Champions League and Real Madrid's in in the mix then you know, he's always going to be there as well. But again, I don't think there's any worries about Manchester City until you get the semi-finals and finals, and then we we see what Pep comes up with that he's never done before. 
You know, what he, <laughs> what he can think of. And I mean, he must be getting to the point now where he's done everything, so perhaps it's it's less of a risk. But um, I have a lot of arguments or a lot of conversations with, uh, with with people in the game about Erling Haaland and his role at Manchester City. And a lot of people still won't be convinced until he does it at, at that level in those games against the big sides. There's, there's no question he's quality, of course there isn't, but I think that it is ominous that he's going to be, have, a, have himself a little rest to go for the second half of the season where a lot of teams are going to be sort of, yeah, they're going to be at a deficit fitness-wise. Certainly. What about overall aid? I'm focusing on, on Portuguese football and the advance of teams like Benfica, Porto. What always amazes me about them is their ability to replenish after losing their best talents. European football has always been their, their shop window. Does that then limit the extent of their achievements? You know, are we looking at Portuguese football as, okay, get in the last 16, maybe nick a place in the last eight, but no more? Yeah, I mean, they can probably shoot a little bit higher than that, can't they? They've they've shown that in this season's Champions League, Benfica were were more than a match for PSG in that in that particular game. So so that would have given them heart. Porter finished the campaign really strongly. But yeah, I think they do know their place in the food chain, don't they? Portuguese clubs. They know that they don't have the finances. So what do they do? They they invest maybe more time and energy into their scouting and recruitment and that side of things just just to bring in players that have potential and they also develop good coaches don't they I mean how many how many smart Portuguese coaches are there around and I mean there was it's an incredible amount so yeah they they know then that they're not a heavyweight in European football so they concentrate on what they can do better than other nations potentially and yeah you've got to admire it you have to they, they just have to, it's a bit it's like any underdog you've got to work that little bit harder to keep pace with the rest and that and that's what Portuguese teams do and they all, they're also very good, aren't they, at saying, look, go and better yourself. We're not going to stand in your way, whether it's a coach or a player. They they, they let them go and they move on and they just regenerate. It's it's pretty impressive. And a good example for other countries around Europe outside of those so-called big leagues. I think it's absolutely amazing what they're doing in Portugal. You look at the... If you take a top 10 clubs in Europe for transfer fees received. You have Porto, Sport and Lisbon in that and Benfica right at the top. It's just incredible what, what, what they're going to achieve. And if you look at someone like Benfica where they they have 300 people, 300 people involved in their recruitment at all levels. Really? I didn't know that. In, in, their, in their scouting system. And I think even with Sporting and, and Porto, they, they themselves have an, another 300 between them as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible, and their focus—not not just you know—they they produce players and, and managers, but with the players, someone like Benfica, they don't worry about results at youth level. They're not trying to win leagues at youth or, or, or trophies at youth level. It's very player-centered. They pr- try to produce players, not teams, and it's it's obviously a system that works for them. And, and with with in regards to the uh, the coaches. I've been on a few coaching courses in Scotland and England here, and there's lots of Portuguese come over, right from uh, Mourinho doing his uh, his his coaching badges at Largs in Scotland with Scottish FA. I think that sort of encouraged a lot a lot of Portuguese coaches. So it's not like it's not the the coaching system itself over there that's producing these coaches, but what they do do 
is one, they promote young coaches. A lot of the coaches that have come across started coaching in their early 20s. They all come from academic background. And the biggest thing for me is that they're encouraged to come up with their own creative ideas. So they're not just copying a template from somebody else and then adding those little bits. They're really encouraged to to be creative with the, with the way that they, they try and approach games. And, and of course, with the top three, they're so dominant more often than not. They have to be creative in their, their tactics to try and break down the other sides who are usually quite defensive in, the, in their approach to make sure that they can, they can try and get results from them. So that there's just so many sort of aspects to to the way they do things in Portugal that's that, that's conducive to, to to what's happening now. Yeah, well, when you think about it, it's logical to assume that the next manager coach to leave will be Ruben Amorin at Sporting Lisbon. Uh, you know, I would expect to see him in the Premier League within a year. I would have thought. It's interesting eh, that there's almost been a corresponding decline in representation from La Liga, you know, Atletico Madrid. That's the end of an era the Simeone era, you know, the failure to qualify. And I suppose when you think about it, it's little wonder that the biggest losers from the group stage, and I'm thinking of Barcelona, Juventus, they're pushing so hard for a Super League. Yeah, yeah, but there's yeah the structure behind the scenes isn't isn't <laughs> isn't good enough, is it? And, and they've not been managed properly I guess as well from you know in terms of off the pitch work so yeah no wonder they're clamoring for for the Super League those those clubs they've yeah they've they've bullied they've bullied the rest of Europe in the past with their financial muscle but they they can't do it at the moment Covid obviously hit hit every league hard but but it seems that the Premier League was the most resilient to that and and, and those in Italy and particularly Spain have come out of it significantly weaker haven't they and uh yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an issue for them. I, I still don't really want the Super League to happen, but but those clubs will continue pushing on Simeone. He's just, he's on such big money, isn't he? Is it one of the best paid managers in the world? I just, just don't don't think they can afford to get rid of him. Mm. Well, Jamie Vardy, by contrast, to all that elitist manoeuvring is is football's everyman. Discarded at sixteen, Premier League record at thirty five. He spans the generations and the chasm between the grassroots and the elite. Here's a fascinating insight into his career. Jamie, thanks very much, first of all, for joining us. You're 35, Premier League record breaker. You've had a fantastic career. When you look at back at yourself at 16, released by a boyhood club, and, you know, with respect, probably go through the motions a bit at college. What do you see when you look back at yourself? And maybe who do you see? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, do you know, it was a tough one. Obviously, going through the academy system and stuff. When you're a kid, you think that's all you're going to be. So, school, got put on the back burner. I mean, weren't allowed to do a lot of stuff at school anyway because of the academy, so I couldn't do like sports for school and stuff like that either. So, really did get put on the back burner and then you get released and you think, oh dear, mm. <laughs> where do I go from here? And there was only one place I could go really and that was into work. 
Because in a weird way, did Wednesday do you a favour? Because if you think about it, if you'd have become a scholar, you'd have gone through the sort of tippy-tappy development football that there is, and the odds are that you know, you'd be in that massive group that fall away from the game between the ages of, say, 17 and 20. Instead, you went into men's football and you thrived and you showed people what you were capable of. I think that definitely benefited me. I mean, don't get me wrong, the academies nowadays are way advanced to what it was back then. But um, no, definitely playing against, like you say, fully grown, fully grown men like centre-halves, 30-year-old, no-nonsense, definitely toughened me up and showed me that side of the game that I probably wouldn't have got if I'd have gone into, say, the, the scholars. Mm. What do you think made you a career? Because that, that question really is, is almost like twofold. And there's, a, there's a sort of personal side to it and the professional side. Let's start, if we could, with the personal side. Speaking to Patrick Vieira last week, and he made the point that his background, you know, the streets, the estates, almost breeds the right type of person for professional football, which can be you know, quite a brutal business and you need you know, great strength of character to succeed in it. Do you agree with that? I think everyone's different. Some people just have it naturally, whereas others might need to be taught and it's, it's hard to get taught, which I think probably my teaching of it was going in and playing, like you say, lower league, lower league men's football when I was young, like quite a young age. So that probably toughened me up from that side of it. But again, it's a benefit to me, like throughout my career and, and made me the player that I am. Mm. What were the biggest lessons in, in the early stages of your career that you drew from that sort of non-league, you know, Halifax and then, and then on to Fleetwood? Get back up and laugh. That's the main one. If you if you show them signs that uh, that you hurt, it's it's game over. So get back up, laugh. Make sure that next time there's a tackle, it's it's you're the one that's that's going in just as tough as them and letting them know that they're in a game. It's like anything that look and see a slight young lad and they think all the birthdays have come at once. But if you can get on top of that and go in with like all the strength that you've got and use your weight to your advantage, then that definitely helps. Yeah, because there's so many preconceived ideas, aren't there? You know, you, you talk about how oh, they look at you and think, oh, he's, he's not quite big enough. You know, that's what scouts said, isn't it, really? They saw the natural qualities you've got, your pace and your ability to score goals, but, you know, is he big enough, basically, mm -hmm. which is a bit of a cop-out, isn't it, really? I first saw you play at Fleetwood at Forest Green in the conference, man, about... 2010, 2011, something 2011. like that. Yeah. Now, I was with a bunch of scouts for a book I was writing. They all saw your, your natural qualities, but none of them would put their name on you. In other words, yeah, we've got to go and get this kid. What did Leicester see that they didn't? I couldn't tell you. I remember just before I signed it, I came, um, came for a visit around the, around the old training ground and sat down with the director of football at the time, Steve Walsh, and he literally brought out a booklet of match reports from all their different scouts and how many times they'd been to watch. And he basically said that I ticked every single box that, that they wanted in a player, as well as what I was like, like off the pitch as well. So 
as soon as I saw that and saw obviously the amount of time that they'd taken to to be scouting me, there was there was never no no other option where I was going. Mm. It, it seems to me that you know if you look at your professional qualities, you see things slightly earlier than others on a pitch, and you've got that pace to get yourself in the position to actually exploit that. Is that a conscious thing, or is it just instinctive? You know, the movement that you have, and and you know your your eye for a flow of the game. I think some of it's some of it's natural. Some's instinct, but I also think that you have to be analysing games as well. You've got to, if something's not gone well for you the, the previous game, for instance, you, you look back and you see what you could have done better or what different run you could have made. And I think it's just, it's always like that. You can never, never be too old to, to still be learning. You can learn things, obviously, for the rest of your life. It's all about if you take it on board and, and if you're wanting to, to actually learn and improve. Because you know your part now, of, I suppose we can call it like the Dropbox generation, where you'll get your clips fed into you. In terms of preparing for a game, how concentrated are you on those you know, pieces of analysis? Yeah, you have to you have to look at them. So, like I said, each game's different. Each team you play against will set up in a different way, or they'll build up in a different way, or when we're attacking, they'll defend in a completely different way. So you always have to keep analysing every single team you're playing. So we do that week on week basis and like I say, you take on board what, what you think personally would help you and the team and, and you try to see if they'll work out. Because when you're on the pitch, a move is maybe building up. What are you actually reading? Are you reading a defender's body shape or the intention of the teammate to provide a certain type of ball? What are you seeing in that moment or in, during those moments? You have to see it all. <laughs> it's, it's hard work, don't get me wrong, but like I say, you have to see where, where the defender is at the minute or where you think he's going to position himself when, like you say, your teammate's coming through with the ball. Then it's what's going to be the better ball for your teammate to play that will advance you up the pitch or what would be the better ball for me to receive myself. You have to take on quite a lot and it's nine times out of ten it's within the split of a moment, you've got to do what you think's right at that moment in time. But again, when it's like that quick, it then comes down to your instinct, which naturally a lot of people have got, but some haven't. When you get in front of a goal, what takes over? Because you know, I've been told by so many different types of sportsmen, snooker players, golfers especially, they say, look, there are times when they're just in the zone, you know, everything slows down, everything's chilled, and they just do it. Is that the same for you when you've got a chance in front of you, a shooting chance or whatever it might be? A lot of the time, yeah. I mean, I've had this question quite a lot. Are you, are you looking at the keeper? Or, yeah, well, I've seen clips on the keeper and how he might come out for a one-on-one, -on -one, for instance. But a lot of it in that moment in time is just instinct. You've literally got less than a second to decide what you're going to do. So it has to come down to a lot of, of your natural ability. But like I say, you still have to do the bit of research before that game on how you see the keeper coming out, for instance. Does that suggest to you that, that goal scorers are born and not made? I think some are, but it can be made as well. Like I say, it's all 
in the art of, of learning. Yeah, you might have that natural ability that can can get you so far, but you've still got to have that eagerness to to want to learn and want to be able to do things slightly different to what you'll have been naturally doing for the past five, ten years when you were a bit younger, for instance. Mm. Out of all the players you've played with and against, I know this is a you know, big question, but <laughs> who's the best striker that you've played with or against and why? With, I always say the same answer. It's, it's one of my old teammates, David Nugent. And it's sheerly on how we were together as a partnership. It, everything just clicked, everything worked. There's this sort of telepathic yes, thing, yeah? just both knew exactly what the other was going to do. So the other striker would do the complete opposite. It worked an absolute, an absolute treat and always enjoyed my time when I was, when I was playing up front with Nuge. So that's, for me, always been my, like my best partnership. What about people you played against? It's a tough one, there's that many. Yeah. <laughs> that many. It comes with being 35, mate. I know, <laughs> the joys. I think when you, when you look at in like players you've played against, you can never be fortunate enough to play against like Messi, Neymar, and you've seen what they've done throughout their career as well. It's, it's been frightening. So I think you'd have to put like them two definitely up there. Yeah, because you know, their ability almost to manipulate the ball, isn't it? It's just crazy. Well, I mean, it's like they've got glue stuck to their feet. It's, it's frightening. They get themselves out of any sticky situation that they're in and you know full well that they're always going to provide. Yeah. You know, I, I alluded to, to it a little bit earlier, your record. You know, the first player to score 100 Premier League goals after turning 30. What's behind your longevity as a player, do you think? Looking after myself. I've made sure I've, um, I've got all the equipment that, uh, that I'd need to do recovery that's in my house. So even when we've had a recovery session here, for instance, I'll then go home and, and carry on doing, doing the extra at home just to make sure that, that I'm fully fresh and, and obviously ready to go again for the next day. Because mm. that's something I think that people don't realise is the extent of almost like the self-help that the top players do. You know, I was speaking to someone about Vinicius Junior at Real Madrid the other day and he, okay, he has a couple of mates who live with him so that's the social side taken out almost like they're his minders almost when mm -hmm. he goes out. But he doesn't have any say in what he eats. He has a you know, living chef, living sports scientist stroke physio. The club just supply data after every session and they work on his own personal welfare, if you like. Mm -hmm. Is that going to be the future, do you think? That more players, you know, because of everything around the game now, you know, the, the celebrity, the money, everything else. It's an amazing profession to be in. And, you know, with every year you can stay in it, obviously you get the benefits from it. I think it goes, it'll probably go more down that side, especially with, like you said, how football is now with, like, sports scientists, data, your fitness coaches, wanting you to do X amount of kilometres a day so that you're fresh for a game and stuff like that. Yeah, it, def it definitely will. And... Like you said, just adding that extra bit in at home 
definitely benefited myself, for instance. So, mm. what sort of stuff do you have? Um, is it like sort of you know the hyperbaric chambers or the, the you know the cold the um, cryos? The cryos, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've got got them all, <laughs> just to make sure. And do you is that a regular thing that you use them? I use them as and when you, the cryos probably the main one that gets used because there was proof that it can help with sleep as well, but I don't sleep anyway, so that's completely contradicts that. But <laughs> no, it's just it's good for obviously getting all the lactic acid out of muscles and stuff like that, and obviously the hyperbaric chambers known for helping muscles recover quicker. So you don't have to be in them long. It's forty minutes stint in the in the hyperbaric, and literally two three minutes in the cryo. So mm. anything to give you that little, even if it's a one percent advantage then it adds up yeah small margins isn't it and i suppose you know do you think that calling time on your international career as you did has that helped you sustain yourself at club level i think so definitely yeah it's given me that time to to have the rest when needed or when the the club think i need a couple of extra days then international breaks now are perfect for that get to fully refresh and make sure that I'm I'm fully ready when the season starts up and running again. Yeah, because it's, it's a strange season, this one, isn't it? But I suppose in a way, because of the World Cup break, that can play into your hands, can't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we obviously know that we're, we'll probably get a bit of time off, which will, like I said, be good for the recovery, but we also know that we've got to be we're back in and making sure we're ready and ready to go for Boxing Day, so, or maybe on the 20th, depending if we get through in the cup. So, still got to make sure that you you're keeping up on on top of your fitness in whatever break you get, and make sure that you come back fit and ready to go. Do you think there'll be any pangs of regret when you're watching England in Qatar? What about just giving what, it up? Yeah, that could have been me. Yeah. No, not all. I'm happy to sit there and cheer them on. Like I said, I think it's benefited me in still being able to to be playing for Leicester at, at 35. So mm. it was a decision that I made, always stood by, and one that I'll not regret. I know it's dangerous to look forward too far into the future. I, say, I look till tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got a contract till June 2024. Mm -hmm. How long do you think you can stay in the game? Who knows? That's the million dollar question get asked all the time, you, you never know. And the only thing I can say is it's however long my legs will, will keep me going. I'm sure they'll be the first thing that, that tell me they've had enough. As soon as that happens, then that'll be the day. Mm. And when that day comes, do you think you'll try and stay in the game? It's not really something I've thought about. All I know is like football's so physical and so mentally like draining where you're having to like I say you're having to have them shut offs you need to completely forget about it so it's, it's not something I've looked at but I'll definitely be be looking at it soon. Mm. Do you still sort of replay games over in your mind sort of you know because I know, I know quite a few players who basically can't get to sleep until sort of three o'clock in the morning after a game simply because it's still whizzing around in their minds. No, the, with the adrenaline stuff, I'd, I'm shocking after a game for sleeping. But I'm also one of them that tries not to think about the game. I know full well we've got another game coming up. 
So that game's done. It's it's in the back now. So just concentrate. I think with stuff like that, like with all my achievements, I've always said it's not something I've really had chance to look back on. It's something that I'll probably be trying to fully cram into to when I've finished. And of all the achievements that you've had, what one meant the most to you? To me, you know, I'd probably say it's not even a personal one. It was us doing the great escape and staying in the Prem. Because I think that was what we needed to then kick on like the following season and have the stability that we've had for for the past eight, nine years. And as a final point, probably go back to the start. There's a 16-year-old listening to this chat and he's in the position that you found yourself in. Mm-hmm. What's your advice to him? Never give up. There was plenty of times where I wanted to, trust me, but... Um, like you were saying earlier, I, I mean, I stopped, stopped playing. I was just working part-time. Went to college. Luckily at college, bumped into um, another one of the lads who'd just been released at the same time as me. And he was like, oh, just come and play with us on a Sunday. So I was like, you know what, why not? Got nothing to lose. Just playing with a group of mates. Went from there to, like you say, Stocksbridge. Worked my way up into the first team and then Halifax, Fleetwood, Leicester and not look back. Mm. Never give up. It's not a bad way to live your life, is it, really? Not at all. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No, Thanks, it's brilliant. Man. Thank you. Cheers, Bob. Well, I found that chat really interesting and actually probably not what was expected. A lot more thoughtful and invigorating in many ways. Adrian, I thought the key message at the end, don't give up. That's really powerful, isn't it, for any aspiring player out there? It is, yeah. But uh, resilience is what you need in bucket loads, really, to make it as a professional footballer in the first place and then to stay there. It's just so many ups and downs you're going to have so many knocks and you just can't give up because to one manager you might be pretty worthless you know a, a sub a squad player someone they don't care about but to someone else you're a key man and you're the same player so you should never lose heart and never give up and and, and you just got to find the right place providing you've got the right ability and desire to be a footballer and uh, yeah no I thought that was a good good message and, and what was also really interesting and it backs up that never give up is really his mantra because when you asked him for, you know, sort of greatest achievements, he didn't say the title win. He said mm. the great escape. He said the great escape, which in that season, Leicester didn't give up. I watched them that season and they were awful. They were in, in a right state. Um, so for them to survive, they had to believe they, they couldn't give up and they, and they didn't. So yeah, that was, yeah, it was a really good interview. And yeah, I think that was, that's a, a big message at the end. Yeah, I thought we had almost an understated masterclass in the art of scoring goals or forward play. As a goalkeeper, David, what can you take from his insights into the art of forward play? I think that in general that you, you, strikers are a really uh, good source for, for goalkeepers and goalkeeping coaches just to get in their mind, get in their mindset in this situation. You know, what's going through your mind? What do you think in this situation? But I think that... Um, 
it's really interesting about when Jamie talks about his preparation for games and sort of how he looks at goalkeepers and if he can find chinks in their armour, can he take advantage of it? And I think certainly myself, you probably underestimated him a little bit in in the way that he thinks about the game. And it's interesting to think that when he's talking about, you know, yeah, some things are natural. Well, of course, that when you hear strikers talk like that, or you see hear players talk like that, I always think that, well, it's just because they don't have any real conscious thought behind what they do or they don't give a lot of, a lot of time to it. But they've been through them situations. It's all stored in the, in the back of the head. They, they, they've been in those situations lots of times, so they've got them there to draw on. But it's really interesting to, to see how much he does think about the game and how much he, you know, he, he wants to look at defenders and, and, and goalkeepers in particular. And it was, um, yeah, like I said, it's really interesting to, to know that he's not just relying on his physical traits, you know, and, and going back to what he's talking about, never giving up. That's the thing about him. He had exceptional traits as a as a player, even when he was outside of the league. You know, when he was, you know, his pace and his finishing ability. Those are things that can take you forward, and you can build something on. You can build a career on. It's a real bonus for us that those sort of exceptional abilities were seen by somebody. You know that that it was missed by a lot of other people. A lot like he talked about, they weren't willing to take a take a chance on him. It's a bonus for us that uh, you know he's managed to be able to develop them, given the chance to develop them. I was really impressed by the breadth of his preparation. You know, when he talked about, you know, he's got a cryogenic chamber at home, got a hyperbaric equipment as well. That seems now to be the standard for a top pro, doesn't it? It does. And I think for him, though, it shows how much he treasures being a professional footballer at the highest level. It, he had to work so hard to get there. He'll do anything to stay there for as long as he can. But yeah, it was very good. And I too was struck by his preparation. And he meant he was the one who brought up how much he analyzes his own performances and goalkeepers and defenders. Because yeah, at his age, you might think that they might be winding it down a little bit and they might be just think, you know, just almost turning up, you know, how 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 much longer can I eat this out for? But no, he's he's still looking to push on takes football very seriously we all know about the sort of Jamie Vardy's having a party kind of kind of you know uh, he's a life and soul but he also takes takes that football very very seriously so um, yeah and uh, and the modern players obviously he I guess he still came into it where where there was a lot of lot of focus on nutrition and fitness and mentality I think before he came into professional football it wasn't there he's 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 a product of the environment, which is just filled with experts. And I just think that that all of this current generation just take it as as read that that they're going to better themselves in terms of their mentality, in terms of their fitness and nutrition and health. So, yeah, it's quite normal in that respect. I think it, I was listening to Stuart Pearce uh, talking last week, and he talked about how he he came into the game late, similar time to to, to Jamie did. And he always felt that he was owed a few more years because he came into the game late. And obviously because of the... He probably hasn't as, as much toil on his body as perhaps somebody coming through, you know, playing more consistently in, in those sort of years between 16 and 21. So he probably can go on a little bit longer. But I also think that where he come from has been the thing that's taken him to where he's got to now. You know, I thought you hit the nail on the head about the, um, you know, because he didn't come through that system, he was different. He was used to different things. When he came into the game, you know, he learned how to cope with physicality. 
he, he was direct. He'd been used to chasing balls over the top. All these things that perhaps not coached out of, of, of players, but certainly they're not used to doing in their in under 21s and under 18s games. So it just gives them a different dynamic there to, to what players who are brought through the system are used to doing. Yeah, he, he was exposed, wasn't he, to yeah. the rougher rougher elements of football and it's it shaped him. But there are, you look around the Premier League, there are a few that, have, that you could probably say the same to. Mikel Antonio at West Ham, come through non-league, made it the hard way. He's a unique player, isn't he? He's not a prototype footballer. There are a number, really. I mean, Callum Wilson came through Jack Jarabow and Troy Deeney as well. These are players that have sort of, yeah. I I think they are unique and individual players, and and it's helped to shape them. It, I think I think all all young footballers would benefit, and they won't all be given it, but they would all benefit from doing a little bit of time in non-league or in the lower leagues absolutely because it, it can and can round you not just as a footballer actually but round you as a person hanging around other types of people as well I, th- I think there's certain positions that lends itself to more certainly goalkeepers strikers and central defenders and talking to a lot of uh, a lot of scouts they're actually when they're looking to scout central defenders even for for championship and premier league clubs obviously at a young age you're looking for for players who have that robustness, who have something that the players at academy levels don't have. And um, so it's it might- a tick. It's a positive. If if on their CV, they've had a spell at Dagenham and Redbridge, it's a tick. Yeah. Th- in th- a think, way. Think <laughs> things things are all about cycles. So, you know, you look at centre-halves and everyone's looking about a central defender who can play off from the back and is very technically very good. But then once it always goes too far one way and then you think, well, they are very good with the ball, but they they're not really a great defender. So they, then they try and look for people who can defend. It's all all cyclical. Yeah, well, to, to adapt to the, an old boxing phrase, I think I think it was used by Mike Tyson. You know, everyone's got a plan until a centre <laughs> half elbows you in the face, haven't they? Really. Um, just as a final point, aid. You know, I, I was struck also by his admission that he owes a lot of his longevity to that decision to retire from the England team uh, after the last World Cup. Do you think that's an understandable stance to take? I do, I do. I've always been a little bit critical of players that have sort of walked away from England because I'm an England fan and I want the best players there and I want us to have the best chance of of getting success. And I, I've always had that sort of idea that if, it, if your country needs you or asks for you, you, you do it. But for him, it was absolutely the right decision. And maybe as well... You've got to look at the situation, the scenario. Harry Kane is is the main man. He's always going to play. So for him to spend that, you know, lengthy periods away from his family, to train, you know, on those international breaks as hard as you would in every other week, it might not have been that sensible, given that he, he would get very few caps because Kane is the main man. And before that, it was Rooney. So, um, yeah, I, I understand it. And for him, it was totally the right thing to do. But I don't know, as an England support, I wouldn't have minded seeing him in action a bit more often. Yeah. I'd like to end, if I could, chaps, on a bit more of a a sobering note. Obviously, we know that the World Cup is stampeding at us across the horizon. As ex-pros, what do you think of squads of players like, you know, those of Australia speaking out publicly about uncomfortable issues relating to the Qatar World Cup? Do you think star players like them have a responsibility to use their platforms in that way what about you think what do you think first of all Dave 
and I, I, I know Billy Wright, who's um, involved in the Australian squads in, uh, from a time at Sunderland. And, and to borrow a phrase from uh, from Brendan Rogers, he's a fantastic human being, uh, and he is the type of person who would who, who would lead on this. And, and I think it's, it is really important now. Of course, the, the, people might say if, if you really want, if you really feel that strongly about it, and you really want to make a protest, then don't go. But I think that's for people higher up to to take those sort of decisions uh, for a team as a whole. But yeah, I'm all for it, and I think that at the end of the day, it, it's all about the the effect it has, and, and can it sort of can it have a real effect. On, on what they're trying to do and um, and what they're protesting against. And, and if in the future that there's authorities take notice of these uh, these protests and not drag themselves into a world where everything's uh, more acceptable, I just think that it, it really is um, a brave thing for them to do as well. Because they, they, they have come in for some criticism about about stepping forward and putting, putting their head above the parapet, but... Certainly, uh, I applaud them. Yeah, it's got to be about more than you know, pretty futile gestures like wearing an armband, isn't it, Aid? Yeah, I think it's a powerful message, definitely. And I've got nothing but admiration for the players that that are prepared to do it, and and well done to them, kudos. But in the in the same breath, I, I don't think we should judge those that don't. I don't think there is a responsibility as such for all players and all teams to use their platform to, to send out these messages. Because the bottom line is they're there to work, aren't they? They're there to win football matches. They're there to, it's the pinnacle of their careers. And, and you know, they should really be concentrating on the on the football, which, which they all are. But I wouldn't criticise anybody for not putting their head above the parapet in the same breath. But, but for those that want to, I love the fact that Australians Federation has given them the ability to get those messages out there. And I'm sure that if there are England players or Welsh players that want to do the same, that they won't be obstructed. I'd like to think they won't be. Um, so, yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in the weeks to come. But look, for, for me, just yeah, I'm, I'm just looking forward to the football. I want to forget where it is. True. Well, it's an uncomfortable truth that global sports events can no longer be taken at face value. Sure, we're going to be drawn in by the daily diet of drama when the tournament gets underway in Qatar, but this World Cup doesn't exist in a vacuum. There are ethical, political and financial aspects to consider. It's understandable and, in my opinion, laudable for players to challenge our consciences if they see fit. In that spirit, thanks to Jamie Vardy for his time and, of course, thanks to Adrian and David for their insights Thanks also to you for your feedback. <laughs>